Welcome back to our little group ride. A couple of episodes ago, I interviewed my friend Christian about his experience as a black cyclist working in the industry. I invited him back to co-interview this week's guest, Rasan Bahadi. Rasan's a multi-multi-multi-time national champion pro road racer who's been on some of the top and most controversial teams. In this episode, he shares how he got into cycling, his experience in the peloton, and now leading a team, a foundation, and helping nurture the next generation of racers. We recorded this on June 9th, 2020, about two weeks after George Floyd's murder sparked massive Black Lives Matter protests across the nation. In that light, we discuss Rasan's experiences as a black man racing and winning in a predominantly white sport, and wrap up with a few ideas on how all of us can help introduce a more diverse audience to the sport we all know and love so much, cycling. Hey, one quick note, about five minutes in, Rasan's signal gets a little warbly, but it goes away within a minute and you can still make out the conversation. Here we go, enjoy. What's up, Bikemer fans? Today we're here with Rasan Bahadi, pro cyclist, and uh, my friend Christian is joining us in too because he is a super fan of Rasan's and wanted <laughs> to ask some questions and be part of this conversation. So uh, how's it going, Rasan? Hey, going pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Thanks for making the time. I've, I've seen you doing a lot of interviews over the past few days for for obvious reasons. It's um, You've been a busy man lately. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it came at such a time uh where you know society is looking at race relations and social injustice and everything else surrounding uh black people in america but you know i guess it's better late than never um so uh i'm not gonna say i'm, I'm happy to talk about it but i i'm uh i guess in the right in, in the right place at the right time to voice uh some of my concerns and, and my experiences uh, been, you know, been in the sport of, of cycling. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, man, it's, I feel like the conversation should be having had or being had, it's terrible wording, uh, but, you know, it's, um, it's never fun when you have something like what's going on with George Floyd and everything be the catalyst for the conversations. So mm -hmm. anyway, man, <clears throat> Christian, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well, man. It's a, uh, it's a little bit surreal sitting here, uh, you know, with you again and then having a having a, a personal hero of mine on but this is you know this is not a not an easy topic to talk about but i think you know as rasan said it's, it's better late than never you know? yeah well let's rasan let's start just kind of like general overview maybe for the people who aren't familiar with you as a racer like give us a little bit of background on you racing how you got into cycling and kind of some like i don't know hero moments on the course that people would be aware of sure um so i'm i'm one of seven um, my mom and dad had a lot of kids, seven, seven children. Uh, I have five sisters and a younger brother and I'm, I'm right in the middle. So if you talk to any of my siblings, they'll tell you that I was a spoiled rotten kid. Um, cause I was the first, I was the first son uh, and my dad was, uh, you know, he was excited to finally have a son after having three girls in a row, which I have three girls of my own right now. Uh, so you see the pattern there. Uh, but born and raised in, in Compton, California, um, you know, it's the it's, it's typical of what you may have seen through uh, television, uh, news and whatnot. So I grew up in the 80s where there was a lot of crime, there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of gangs, violence. Um, and I always tell people I was one of the lucky ones. And the reason I say that is because one, 
I had mom and dad at home. That was a, I didn't know then, but you know, as you get older, you realize, wow, you know, you, you start to meet kids that are raised in a single parent home. It's really rough. It's, it's hard. It's not easy. Um, they're raised by their grandparents. Not that that's a bad thing. It's just, you know, having that father figure and that mother figure in one home was a big deal. And again, I didn't realize that until older in life. So uh, later in life. Um, so that helped, you know, kind of mold who I am today. Um, and I found the sport of cycling at, at 12, 11, 12 years old. And it's, um, it's, it's the typical story of the boy who cried wolf. You know, my, both my mom and dad were educators in the company Unified school district. And unfortunately for me, I use that to my advantage to get away with a lot of things, you know, <laughs> like to be late to school. I'll tell my mom, you know, you know who my mom is type of thing. Um, and, uh, it was one day typical Rasan Bahati, uh, first day of class or, or first class of the morning, I would always skip it or just be late, you know, walk in late. Cause I knew I wouldn't get in trouble. And this time I actually went in early and <laughs> I had to use the restroom about halfway through and uh, I raised my hand and said, Hey, Mr. Garmin, uh, can I be excused to go to the restroom? He said, no, put your hand down. School's almost out. Or, you know, class is almost out. No, really, I really have to go. And he knew that I lied so much to get out of class. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm lying again to get out of class. But this time I really had to go. And, you know, the lesson was don't lie because no one would ever believe you. Um, so I ended up throwing an eraser at him. And uh, he didn't see me throw it, but it definitely hit him. And class dismissed. People were laughing. They thought it was the funniest thing on earth. But someone sat back, and he told me it was a girl. She sat back, and she actually told on me. She said, you know, son did that. So moral of the story, or the end of the story is, I got in trouble. And the consequence was he brought my parents in and said, look, you have a good kid, but he's really starting to go down the road. Um, there's a couple actual programs that I'm involved with. One is bikes, one is golf. And when he, when he said bikes, uh, when he said bikes, I was like, dude, that's motorcycles. All right, I'll get motorcycles. That's what I want to sign up for. But in actuality, it was the 1984 Olympic Velodrome. And uh, I went up there and I was absolutely turned off uh, by seeing a bunch of white guys in tights going around the Velodrome. And that was my introduction to cycling. Right on, man. Obviously, you've come a long way since then. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the big turning point for me was this after-school program was, it was twice, twice a week. Uh, Monday, Wednesdays were for beginners. Tuesday, Thursdays were kind of for like the advanced kids that could actually race and under, understand track cycling. Um, I did the Monday, Wednesday for about a year. Thought that punishment was done. I wanted to go back to playing football and baseball. And my dad had bought me a jersey and some shorts from a company called Kacherik. I don't even think they're around anymore. Um, and I think maybe he spent 60 bucks. He thought that was like buying a, you know, a high-end kit today. You know, he's like, oh, I spent $60 on you. You're going to go back and use this kit. So I ended up going back the next year and really started to like it. And the turning point was when I was – uh, 13 years old, and I raced a kid who was 18 years old in a match sprint, and I beat him. And the entire velodrome lost their mind. I was like, wait a second. He's 13. He's beating an 18-year-old who's a national champion. And from that point forward, it was just kind of like an uphill trajectory where 
they raised money for me to go to junior track nationals in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So I went there as like my real first bike race ever. First time uh, out of California that I can remember. I did go to Alabama as a kid because that's where my mom's from, but definitely don't remember that. And it was just surreal. I got there and I was racing and I won four medals and I was so excited. And I just wanted to continue to, to race just to receive medals. I didn't know anything about making money or seeing it as a future. Um, yeah. And then, like I said, it was just, uh, it, it was a blessing. I, I got myself on the junior national team, got a chance to travel internationally. And then I started winning national championships. And that's when, you know, people started knocking on the door and want to offer you equipment and pay for all your expenses. And then one day they say, Hey, we want to give you some money. And that's when the shit got real. <laughs> you know? um, so I guess the highlights to, um, to the viewer or to the listeners uh, would be my first national championship actually came in my home state in California. It was in San Diego. Um, I won junior track nationals and then placed well in the road. And then from there, I went on to like Pan Am games and won some medals there as a junior. Um, and then the highlight as my junior career was my last year. I won six national titles. So uh, three on the road and uh, three on the track. But the big one on the road was that I was still a junior and I won the elite criterium national championships in Downers Grove. And I'm going to just tell you a quick story to the listeners. Yeah. So what, what year was that, by the way, just to put that in the that was that was 2000 or 1999. Was it 99? 2000. It was 2000. So I was with the Mercury Cycling team. It was ran by John Warden. And he had guys like our ex CEO of USA Cycling, Derek Bouchard Hall. Uh, Baden Cook was on the team. Uh, you know, we had guys like Gore Frazier and, and Chris Horner. I mean, teams are stacked, right? And he took me to this race as he did. And I would always be the young kid that he would just give that opportunity to, to learn how to race. So here I am in Chicago thinking I'm just doing another race with the big dogs. And we raced together on Saturday. It was a pro-am race. And then Sunday, uh, as we have our team meeting, he goes, yeah, we're racing at 10. The pros race at 12. I'm like, what? Two different races? So I do the race. I win, cross the line. They're like, and you're a new national champion. I'm like, wait a second. This was the national championships? So true story, I didn't even know I was racing the national championships. I just thought it was uh, I just thought it was another race, and that's how I became the elite criterium national champion at at seventeen. That's awesome, very cool. What what was the experience like then? Because I mean, cycling is still a predominantly white sport. Um, yeah. You know, what was that like back then? You know, from the high school level on up. You know, were there were, were there challenges you faced, or was it just a cool scene? You know, I think that's where naiveness is a gift and a curse. Um, I was blind and I guess you could say it wasn't really privy to, you know, the racism and the discrimination that was going on. And so at my level, luckily for me, you know, sometimes John Warden gets a bad rap, but I, I know he treated me as if he treated anyone else. And this is a white guy, right? Um, and he saw something in me and wanted to develop my talent. And I think he did a great job doing that. Um, you know, so I think I was just kind of, I was sheltered from all of that stuff until I went to Europe. And I went to Europe my first time, I think I was like maybe 16 or 17. Um, and that's where you start to see, if, it, if you don't want to call it racism, um, and even back then I didn't call it racism, I just called it ignorance. Um, you know, I called it a, a prejudice, uh, 
you know, because people are judging you before they get to know you, you know what I mean? Um, and so maybe it was racism, but at least from my point of view at that age, I, that's what I, that's what I uh, concluded that it was versus anything else. But as I got older, um, it was definitely some racism, but back to your original question, I think the culture at Mercury Cycling and at like Saturn that I was on, I didn't see any of that um, here, here in America at, at that young age. That's good. Cool. Christian's looking at me like, he's just like shaking his head like, oh yeah, he's looking at his notes, so I think he has a question for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've just been uh, ticking away at my questions here, man. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, just, you know, coming uh, as, as, a, as a black cyclist, another you know, black cyclist, um, it sounds like you, you, you were fairly well supported and, and championed, you know, by your, by your, your, your mentors, who I'm assuming most were white. Um, uh, mm-hmm. You seem like you were, were you supported as much by your counterparts, your teammates, um, even, you know, USA Cycling as an organization, did they, did they, you know, at that point during your junior career seem to really be genuine about developing your talent? Because, you know, we've seen so many initiatives started, you know, NASCAR had their draft for diversity, um, you yeah. know, so many industries are pushing this thing, but we always see these kind of half-cocked efforts. Did you feel that USA mm-hmm. Cycling was really about you know, helping to push you along just like the rest of your contemporaries. Yeah, they were willing to push me along as long as my legs were going fast. <laughs> and I, I, I realized that early. Um, and it was like, they would support you, again, as long as you were going fast enough. But as soon as you slowed down or had an off year or, or you know, cycling, you go through phases, man. You could be rolling in February and March and then all of a sudden – April and May, it looks like you don't even know what you're doing. And then they give up on you, right? Um, I, I know I noticed that early. So I would say they definitely missed the missed the ball when it come when it came to um driving diversity and also um helping cultivate the black community to just even have a a, a seat at the table when it comes to bike racing, you know. There's always been black people that ride bikes always um you know i'm i'm always just kind of jumping around a little bit but i'm always disappointed in usa cycling and the olympic committee and the uci that nelson vells is not sitting at the table somewhere yes. doing something Absolutely. within the sport you know it's, and it's such a disappointment because i know everyone can't transition from pro bike racing to having a seat you know at the table but this is a guy who ever since Major Taylor, he was the only one to do something at that level. He, he got an Olympic medal, uh, you know, in 84. In, in 84 yeah, at, as an African-American cyclist. Yeah, they went one, two. It's like, those guys are still in the sport and, 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 and have some say-so and all this stuff. So I just think it, it's that, that bothers me, man. And sometimes I hate saying it because it feels like I'm, I'm kind of like uh, talking down on Nelson. Um, but he shouldn't be having to hustle right now, being that he broke down so many barriers, you know, in the U.S. Uh, on a world stage at that. So I, I'm really, it, I'm really glad you you mentioned his name because there was a, oh, oh man, there was almost you know what 80 years or you know between you know when when major twilight of major taylor's career and then we finally had another african-american wearing a you know a a usa kit or or wearing a champion's jersey 
Um, and then even beyond that, it wasn't until, I guess, you and your 2008 uh, Elite Criterion Championship that we actually had another African-American wearing the Stars and Stripes. Um, h- how heavy was that jersey when you pulled it on? Man, you know, that that whole – so that last few years of me kind of racing as uh, at, at the top of the junior ranks was, was kind of crazy because at that time I just – even though I knew about Major Taylor, I started to read about him. And, like, he won a world title in 1898, 1899, and then the 1900s. So, for me, I was like, oh, it's destined. I'm going to win worlds this year. 100 <laughs> years later, you know, I won. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was kind of like it was a motivating factor that he had did it 100 years ago, right? And then you think you just talked about Nelson you talk about 84. So look at 80 plus years that it took to get another um, black cyclist to actually become a household name of of some sort. Um, So yeah, it, it, it felt good. Um, But the reality is I, I never, I never was like, I never got too high on winning big races. You know, I don't know if you saw my YouTube thing that I did about the CSC Invitational, but for me, that that was bigger than any race I had ever won. Um, And and only because it was it was in a community where there was a lot of black people around, you know, Virginia, right next door to D.C. So, you know, the Chocolate City definitely came out to support. Um, So that felt good to race in front of people that look like me. Um, The Harlem Critters, I guess, taking over that, yeah. Yeah, sidebar, a guy uh, a guy by the name, he goes by DJ Brew, uh, he's out of D.C. He met me. Um, he met me at the Clarendon Cup in 2007. I, he told me that I signed an autograph for him, and he went home, and he started racing bikes from that year forward. And he's been on a, he's been on a rip for the last, I don't know, five, ten years uh, racing bikes. But, you know, so stuff like that, those are the stories, those are the things that, like, Man, I inspire someone to get on to get on a bicycle, start riding, and eventually start racing. Um, so putting the jersey on it, it it's definitely exciting. It's, it's definitely an accomplishment, but I never, like I said, got like head over heels about it. Yeah. So you know, you definitely you know, watching. I know for a while uh, you were the only person that I personally had, had seen that looked like me that was racing at that, that level and it definitely inspired me to, to you know, go harder in my, you know, cat five, cat four days. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. you know, fast forwarding, um, you know, you, you got the elite, you know, championship in two thousand eight. Um, you, you went over to the tour of Britain, um, you know, you got some kind of got some chops about you, you know, racing in Europe. What was there anything, you know, transitioning from a from a junior to like an elite level cyclist? Did did you notice anything different in the way you were treated by like you know racers and and staff of other teams when you went to Europe as an elite racer, or was it was yeah, it... that's a that's a good question. Um, the the big thing personally for me was one training had to be different. Uh, with so you go from like the junior ranks where you can train, you know, 15, 16 hours a week, dabble in some of the pro events, you know, and, and get a, a few results here and there. Cause as a junior, I won quite a few pro races, but then what I noticed and, and I'll get what I noticed as a senior, that volume had to just come up tremendously by like 10 hours. Right. So that was a big learning curve for me. Now, 
when it came to other teams and, and the treatment, one thing that I do recall a lot is, you know, like they, they really wanted to show me that I wasn't a junior anymore and I was in the pro ranks. You know what I mean? So like racing, I wouldn't call it dirty. It was just a little bit more aggressive. And was it intentional? Who knows? But I definitely noticed that when I was a junior racing the pro race, they were a little bit more uh, forgiving. Um, but as a senior, it was kind of like, all right, he's a he's not a kid anymore. He's 18. I could treat him like a like he's been doing this for 30 years. And uh, it was a little bit more, you know, like I said, aggressive and uh, more more pushing and and chopping and you know oh, yelling and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Where <laughs> I didn't really experience that as a, as a junior. So, um, you know, I going from there, I've, I've definitely, I, I have to bring this up because I have you here. Um, and from a from a fan standpoint, um, you know, I, I you know can watch and observe this footage and make you know conclusions as uh, as an African American man and not necessarily being put in a situation like this via racing, but mm-hmm. just in everyday life or situations. I, I gotta, I have to bring up 2010 Dana Point GP. Um, mm-hmm. That 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 was three laps to go in that final, or heading into three laps to go in that final corner. Um, would you would you mind just you know for people that don't know what what I guess kind of transpired? Yeah, so 2010, I launched my own team, the Body Foundation Cycling uh, Team, and um, that that particular event was rough because there was a lot going on in my family. Uh, we had just lost a teammate, Jorge Alvarado was hit by a car and killed out in like Highland. Um, I guess that was the week before. So it was the week, the week after the Redlands Classic, which led into Dana Point. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, the, the, the team that crashed me was ran by, uh, Gord Fraser, who is still active in cycling. Um, I was teammates with him on Mercury actually. Uh, followed him around a lot and looked up to him. He was a, a good, savvy uh, bike racer who was quick, a Canadian guy. Um, so, you know, I, I had a lot, a lot of respect for Gore. Work ethics, the, the guy as a climber, could, could, I mean, as a sprinter can climb. And just as a junior, you know, you see these guys, you're like, all right, I want to be like him. You know, this guy can get over some small climbs. He can sprint with the best of them. Uh, he's professional. Um and and he was just as aggressive good bike racer anyway uh so the 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 situation you know i had this just the same way i looked up to gort the guy i was in the incident with the crash with he looked up to me i could show you a million pictures where you see this kid follow me around every single race that i'm in why not i was the best guy on the circuit at that time if i were your coach i would tell you to do the same thing you see that guy follow him you stay on his wheel you be so close, when he farts, you smell it. When he crashes, you should crash. That's how close you should be to him, right? And uh, this kid followed me around, and then he got with Gord. And my own perception or uh, interpretation of what transpired that day is that I think there was a lot of jealousy um, and envy going on. You know, I went from racing in Europe with Tia Kreff to racing with Rock Racing, having some success there. Um I'm still winning. So they, they've been having to deal with me since, since 1998, since I was like at the top of my junior game all the way. Now you're talking about 2010, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so 
uh, I, and then I started my own team and I did it pretty much by myself. You know, I didn't, I didn't have the big sponsors cutting a check. You know, I raised the money. I went out, spent my own money, went to Atlanta, chased down Johnson and Johnson and Cadillac and Porsche and Coca-Cola Rubbermaid. Like my, I did all that. Right. And, uh, we raised all this money and I just felt like people were literally genuinely jealous. Like, damn, man, this black dude get a team like this and he's got all these excellent riders, you know? Uh, so back to the story about the crash, man, uh, things were getting very aggressive. I was in some of the best condition of my life. I was definitely extremely motivated that day. I was the past champion or returning champion. I was, uh, riding for Jorge and a lot of emotions. And, um, you know, I think Gore just kind of pulled one of those things. Like you don't allow him to infiltrate your train and, I've never seen someone be so aggressive to literally purposely crash someone. And luckily for me, I didn't get injured. But you know how many people behind me that like broken bones, broken bikes. Uh, My friend Victor Ayala from Mexico got his nose um, chopped off by a chain ring. So he's talking about plastic surgery. I mean, it was just nuts. It was absolutely nuts. And USA Cycling ruled against me right away without a judgment. Without even, I mean, without even talking to me. So right away, boom, Rasan's an idiot. He threw a water bottle in the field. He crashed it. And then all of a sudden, you know, eight hours later, the bird's eye view camera come out. And I still got a suspension for throwing my glasses at, at Keo. And no one else got a suspension. And I'm just like, how is this possible? You see the evidence. Okay, fine. Maybe I overreacted, but maybe I didn't. But everyone should be accountable for this. So I was more really upset at Gord because I know that he was a DS and he made the call to make things like that happen versus the writer. Um, and then, you know, as in life, I, I get over things and we ended up uh, talking and, um, and having a conversation. And, uh, and, and, you know, we were cordial after that, put it that way. We didn't, be, we didn't become best friends, but we continue the race throughout the last couple of years. And there were, there were, uh, at least for me, there were no hard feelings. So beyond the, I guess, beyond the actual incident, how much of the, cause you know, I, I, I was definitely following you at the times right around, you know, the Williams brothers were coming up and I was just gung ho, like domestic senior racing. And so I followed all the forums and some of just the really visceral reactions towards, you know, you know, what happened in, in the, in the, the, the space between, you know, the start of lap, lap, lap three and lap two, people were, you know, calling for your suspension. They were calling for you to be banned. They wanted USA Cycling to never let you ride again. And as a yeah. black man, I could not help but to just, it, all of the criticism seemed so tinged on you, despite you being the victim of one of the worst, you know, deliberate acts I've seen on a bike in racing like that I've watched the video and it should have vindicated you but it didn't seem to have and and, and, you know looking in retrospect and and going back through this how much of the 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 backlash that you received do you think was was based off the color of your skin and do you feel that any of that had any uh, any stifling effect on your career going forward after that incident um, yes, it, it, it did. Um, but luckily for me, cycling doesn't define me. So that's a good thing, right? It, it's not the only thing I have going for myself. 
um, I could put the bike down and do, do, I can name four different things I can do to continue to provide for my family that's not surrounded around the bike. And that has started early with me. So, you know, I'm grateful for that. Um, and, you know, I did read some of the comments. Some people can't handle <laughs> the backlash. <laughs> I actually did read it. I wanted to see who was saying it so I can know when I'm in their company, who's real and who's fake, you know? Um, so I, I did read a lot of that stuff and, you know, whoever made up, uh, the, the, the phrase sticks and stones and they break my bones, but words that never hurt, they lie because words do hurt, you know? And, uh, it definitely, it definitely put me in a space where I was, um, you know, down and a a little sad, but again, I bounced back. Um, now according, uh, asking about the color of my skin, I do think there, there were some racially motivated, um, comments out there. I mean, you know, it, earlier I said I didn't really experience a lot of racist stuff, but there there were a couple in, instances through uh, cycling here in the United States that I had, you know, someone in a bike race um, say, I don't want your, we don't, we don't want your black ass here, or um, someone called me the N-word on a training ride. But luckily for me, again, I had people that always had my back, you know, um, and as a kid, you know, like, what do you say? What do you do if an adult is calling you an N-word or calling you the N-word? Or what do you do when you're in a, uh, a 100K crit at Super Week and one of your main competitors is yelling out to the top of his lungs, no one wants your black ass here? You know, because if I react, now I'm the bad guy. You're the angry black man. So I have, <laughs> yeah, I'm the angry black man, but I have to keep my cool, and, and, and but he gets to be... Uh, the, the loud, obnoxious guy and, and, and have racial impetus towards me. So uh, that's, you know, this is kind of shifting gears a little bit. When we talk about privilege, that's the privilege, you know what I mean, that, that the certain uh, demographic of white males get even, and females versus the black male female, you know. Um, so um, I, I never let it get me to the point where I wanted to, you say, you know what, screw it. I'm this sport it's a racist sport it's a white sport i always thought that no matter what i'm doing if i can change you know one guy's perception and outlook on black people um this is what i'm going to continue to do man i've showed up to events where you know i probably should have had uh, a suit on but you know what i'm just gonna go on my jeans some jordans and a (laughs) t-shirt that has a message on it and I feel comfortable, you know, and you're being yourself when you, yeah, when you don't know someone, you're going to prejudge them, you know, and, and that's, that's one of the biggest things our country has is just prejudice um, on top of the racism, but I, it's definitely a lot of prejudice. And so I did that purposely because when I open my mouth, when I tell people what I have done, some of the things I have accomplished, oh, did you go to school? Yeah, actually I did. Indiana University of Bloomington. Oh, my daughter went there. All of a sudden, they have a sigh and they could say, all right, he's, he's not what I've seen on TV. You know what I mean? Like he's not what, what I, what he's been portrayed to be. He's not the guy who's crashing people at Dana point. So let me tell my story. And that's why I think this podcast and everything else that's going on right now is very important because you guys, the cycling community industry need to hear my story and not just my Instagram stories. You know what I mean? It's deeper than what you see on the surface. Absolutely. Um, you know, right now we're, 
I, I have referred to it in just my own circle is we're 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 in a we're in a black renaissance with cycling. <laughs> um, you know, mm-hmm. we've got you know you you I've, you know I've followed you. You know, you got the Bahati Foundation. I've seen you know. Uh, you and, and Sharon Smith working together, um, and then you've got the Williams, who I guess you know from outside looking in have you know kind of been under your tutelage to a degree, and then Justin is taking off and he's doing and taking the steps that I've seen you take, and it looks to be a continuation on. And you know he's got youngsters that are looking up to him now. How does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. Is it like does it feel like the you know big dog passing the bone, the little dog, and then it's kind of going down and down, and the torch is just essentially being passed on? Do you think this is something? That you know, having these this next younger, fresher generation, these these guys that are unabashedly themselves, they are all about bringing their style, their culture, um, you know, to the sport and, and really flipping it upside down. How does that make you feel? Do you does that feel like what you've done in your past is is being carried on? Um, yeah, it, it definitely makes me feel good. I'm I'm always. Uh, supporting and excited to see the things that Justin and and his Legion of LA are doing. Um, I'm, I'm also happy that he keeps me in the loop. You know, we oftentimes he picks up the phone and go, yo B, as we call it, yo B, man, here's what's on the table. How do you think I should approach this? Oh, and just that alone is, 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 um, it feels good that he knows that I've already been through a lot that he's going to go through. And that's what I keep telling him. Dude, I already did that. All right. Here's what's going to happen when you do this. And he's had some hard lessons too. You know, he yeah. had, he had some hard lessons on some of the things he didn't listen. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to name any names, but now he's paying the price for some of the decisions that he made because um, it's not, it's not greed. What's the word? It's uh, uh, not anticipation. He's just excited. You know, he can't, he can't wait. It's like that. You know what? I'm going to pick up $5 off the ground today and don't worry about the $10 tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like he, if he just waited one more day, and did it this way. But anyway, uh, he's definitely learning that sometimes you need those, those hard lessons, but um, it is, I, I like to compare what Justin's doing in his movement to what rock racing did, though it is different in, in, in the culture. It's, it's almost the same in nature where I'm coming into predominantly white sport. I'm going to show you how we get down. You know what I mean? I'm going to just go ahead and just throw this curveball at y'all and, Either you like it or you don't. And rock racing did that and was literally pushed out of the sport. We can't blame all of the, yeah, we can't blame all of the sport, but you know, him bringing in all these crazy guys, you know, definitely uh, helped facilitate that. However, what he was doing, even in our first year when we were rocking up with different kits and, and Cadillac trucks, people are protesting at races that we should be driving a Prius and the Cadillac is bad for the environment. It's like, what? Oh, so, I mean, I don't know the percentage back then, back in the late or mid 2000s, but there wasn't a lot of hybrids on the road back then. So all of a sudden this bad boy image of Cadillacs and, 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 you know, uh, girls and, and, and leggings and whatnot was bad for the sport. And it's like, gosh, man, this was so good for the sport. You know, it brought eyes back to crit racing and, and, and some of these even, yeah, man, but some, even the smaller events were well attended because they wanted to see what kit we were going to roll up in. They wanted to see if, if Toyota United could take down rock racing and vice versa. I mean, for me, those were like the heydays of, of bike racing. Um, so I, I just always encourage Justin to stay true to what he believes in, 
and just get to know people before you agree to work with them at all levels. If it's the racer, if it's the sponsors, um, if it's people that's going to sit on your board, um, because to my downfall, I got in bed with some people with my team that I probably didn't need. And it, it, I didn't stay true to what I was going to do with that team in 20 and 2010. So, you know, lesson learned though. And that's, you know, nothing happens by mistake. So maybe that was the lesson that I needed to learn because it was already written that Justin was going to do what he's doing right now and that he was going to be consulting me. You know what I mean? So boom, I had to, I, I had to be the, the, the guinea pig per se. Um, so yeah, super, super happy what he's doing. And, um, I think he is definitely uh, breaking stereotypes, knocking down barriers, um, giving the confidence to kids in the inner city that, that wouldn't otherwise have it. And then now that those, that younger generation sees him and he's now connecting the dots to me and now they're following me. When they meet me, they're absolutely blown away. Even o- older, older adults, you know, in their 30s and 40s, they can't believe they missed what I did. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're an OG now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> how how do you think that translates what they're doing and what you did to other communities? Because like around here, there's a handful of black guys that jump in on the group rides now and then. It's a few. Um, you know, yeah. and I, I see them out on the trails every now and then. But you know, it's it's still definitely a minority of the cycling population that's out there. So how do you get? you know, like, how does anyone encourage more people of color, you know, black, Asian, whatever, just to get out on the group rides? Or is it something where you think they're going to be more comfortable with like, you know, mm-hmm. after school clubs kind of form, you know, just like, I'm terrible name of just black cycling yeah. club, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, cycling has a fundamental problem. And the, that fundamental problem is this cliquish elitist type attitude. And it, to, to be fair, is not just towards black people. It's also towards new people. I mean, if it's your socks are at the right height, why are you here, right? Get off my rack. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's towards women, you know. So Absolutely. cycling as a whole has to start to be more um, opening and, and allow people to be a part of the community. And, and that's what, like... So I have the Bahati Foundation, but I also have a for-profit company called Methods to Winning. And that's what we do. We work to bring people together. Like we have this event where we say, you know what? We want to invite everyone to the park, to one of our biggest parks in California, called our, uh, LA called El Dorado Park. No bikes, bring your shorts. We're going to have water games. We're going to have a you know, water balloon fight. We're going to have a barbecue cook-off. We're going to give out awards. We're going to have, if you play a musical instrument, we took like 12 different uh, club members from 12 different clubs and they created a band so they can play at the event. That's amazing. You know, and these are whites, blacks, Asians, women, you name it. And so it was really just like about knocking down the barrier and bridging the gap between all the different clubs from South LA, Compton, Orange County, you know, Coto de Casa is one of the most bougiest places in Orange County. That's where like Orange County housewives are filmed, right? They have no clue what it's like to drive a Honda Civic or to miss a mill or, you know what I mean? Like, and then you, to the, to the LA clubs, to the Beverly Hills clubs. And we, we brought all those people together and, you know, and we were going to have it this year. Unfortunately, we're not going to have it because of COVID, but 
those are the type of events. We need more social events to help people see eye to eye and just chop it up and talk because when you're on the bike, it's very difficult. We all look the same, you know, outside of our skin color. We, we all look the same. We all are riding a super expensive bike with the $3,000 wheels and, the, and we try to buy the most expensive cycling shoes and the best helmet and the, you know what I mean? And we want to look the part. That's the first thing, which is totally fine. But you can't see past that unless you're on a coffee ride going 12 miles an hour, you know? Yeah. So once we reach speeds of 18, 19, 20 miles an hour, you can't have a sensible conversation and know what I'm about or if I have a family and what my kids do. So that's what that event is about. And I would encourage all clubs to start collaborating. Stop being separate. You know what I mean? Stop having the segregation between clubs. You can all come together, enjoy each other, learn about each other, uh, help break down barriers and stereotypes. And then when it's time to race, still race. And be competitive and have fun because now, I mean, we're, we're all doing it for fun. We're not doing it for a living. Uh, so that's, that's what I would say is the, one of the most fundamental things that any club could do is start to collaborate with other clubs outside of your network. Not if you're in, on the west side, not if you're a club out of Santa Monica and you're collaborating with the Beverly Hills Club. No, you got to be the Santa Monica Club collabor- collaborating with the club out of, uh, out of Carlton called Eastside Riders. You know what I mean? and stuff like that maybe even like non-cycling clubs you know too like i'm just trying to think like we've got a pretty good mountain bike group here that maintains the trails and builds new trails and stuff but you know like i feel like they could outreach to you know community groups and others um but i think one of the challenges a lot of clubs have is even knowing where to start like how do you start to find groups of that are just totally different than yours to do that outreach and invite them to something yeah, in today's world, there's absolutely no excuse because Facebook, we yeah, have yeah. we have Google, we have. I used to always think it was funny when young kids, uh, like you ask a question and their first response is, "I'll Google it," and it took me a while to wrap my head around that. Like, I tried to figure it out on my own, and they just go to Google. So I learned how to do that now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like you have social media that you could. You could literally type anything into social media and something's going to pop up, right? So um, there's no excuse. You you can definitely find other clubs. Um, there's there's black there's a black cycling network. Um, hell, you, you guys hear my voice now. You can reach out to me. You can reach out to Justin. Um, I'm I'm answering emails and, and and Instagram posts all the time. I don't let I don't let them go by at least a week. You know, I try to get to all of them, even if some people ask me for coaching. And I'm like, man, I should be trying you for this, but I'm giving it for free, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that's a good start. And um, like, again, I, I'm here. If any of the listeners like, you know what? I like this idea. I want to, I want to collaborate with a club, but I need some help kind of connecting the dots. Get a hold of me. I hope you out. Right on, man. I appreciate it. Christian, you got anything else? Uh, I just wanted to say it's been a, it's been a privilege, man. And uh, it's great having, thank you for Tyler for having me all on. And, My pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for making the time. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, of course, man. Um, you know, like mentioned earlier, there's been other initiatives through other sports. Um, it's going to be important for us to keep this going. You know, we can't we can't let the flame die out. We want the flame to get bigger. So uh, the more we talk about it, I think the better it will be. And the more we talk, the more we have to act. So if there's, you know, something else that we can do together, um continue to push for change and equality um, so the African-American community is not disenfranchised when it comes to 
to this predominantly white sport, which we all love equally, um, I'm, I'm, I'm here. So uh, again, thanks for the platform. Yeah, man. Awesome. Thank you. See ya. See you guys. Hey, thanks for tuning in. So you may have noticed by now that we really don't publish these on any kind of schedule. Basically, when we get a good interview, we'll post it. So if you like this and you want to make sure you don't miss a single one, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And if you could leave us a rating and a review, that would be amazing. You have no idea how much that helps us to grow and to get better and better guests for you, the listener. So thanks a ton. Hit us up on social and let us know what you think. We're at Bike Rumor on all the major platforms. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.